One extra notice is that this Wednesday, there's a book club at Cath Cooper's house. Have I got that right? That's that. You probably know if that applies to you. I assume that's the ladies' book club. Okay. Let's pray before we open our Bibles. Father, we thank you for your word. We believe that your word has divine power. And we pray that you will show your power through your word this morning. If there are barriers in our hearts that need to be torn down, I pray that you will use your word to do that. And where there is building up work to be done, I pray that you will use your word and that by your spirit you will build us up. I ask this for your glory. Amen. The New Testament often describes the Christian life as a fight or a battle. We saw that in our reading earlier. Sometimes the focus is on fighting against sin in our own lives. It's about resisting temptation and staying faithful to God. But the New Testament also uses battle language to talk about engaging with the world around us. We're told that men and women are in slavery to sin and the devil. We're told that they're chained up in unbelief and darkness. They need to be set free. And on top of all that, we're told there's another battlefront, not just in our own hearts and not just in the world around us. We're told that Satan is trying to trap our brothers and sisters in Christ. He's trying to lead them astray. We're told that when brothers or sisters wander from the truth, we're to bring them back. And we're to turn them from the error of their ways. That's another battlefront. Fighting to bring back those who are wandering away. Those whose hearts are growing cold. Or who are being deceived by lies of some kind. And it's this battlefront that Paul is concerned about in the final four chapters of 2 Corinthians. This morning we're going to turn to the beginning of chapter 10. And we find here that Paul is concerned with fighting for hearts and minds. In the church Bible you'll find chapter 10 on page 1164. And we'll read the first 11 verses. By the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold when away. I beg you that when I come to you, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience. Once your obedience is complete. You are looking only on the surface of things. 
If anyone is confident that he belongs to Christ, he should consider again that we belong to Christ just as much as he. For even if I boast somewhat freely about the authority the Lord gave us for building you up rather than pulling you down, I will not be ashamed of it. I do not want to seem to be trying to frighten you with my letters. For some say his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he is unimpressive, and his speaking amounts to nothing. Such people should realize that what we are in our letters when we are absent, we will be in our actions when we are present. This is God's word. As we move into chapter 10, there's a, quite a noticeable change in Paul's tone. He seems to go on the offensive. And we might wonder why. Well, it seems likely that Paul didn't sit down and write this letter all at once. Or dictate it to his scribe all at once. As he was composing this letter, Paul was still working hard up in Macedonia. He was preaching, he was evangelizing, and he was encouraging the churches there. So he probably wrote this letter in stages. When he got the chance, he'd add a bit more. He'd deal with another topic that he wanted to cover. We've spent the last three weeks looking at Paul's teaching on giving in chapters 8 and 9. But it seems that between finishing chapter 9 and writing chapters 10 to 13... Paul has received some news from Corinth. Now we know that Paul has always had enemies in that city. There have always been people who thought he wasn't really up to much. That's clear from 1 Corinthians, and Paul has mentioned it earlier on in this letter. But now it seems this opposition to Paul has flared up in a big way. Part of the reason is that some outsiders have come into the church in Corinth. These outsiders know that Paul has big influence there, but they want to take control of the Corinthian church. So they set out trying to discredit Paul. If Paul already has a few opponents in the church, these outsiders are stoking the flames of that opposition. They want to turn the whole church against Paul so that they can take over. That seems to be the background to chapters 10 to 13, and it becomes more and more evident as we go through these chapters that that's the background. Paul has become aware he has a battle on his hands. But it's not a battle for personal power and position for Paul. It's a battle for the hearts and minds of the Corinthian believers. These outsiders are false teachers. If they win the battle the Corinthians are going to be led astray. Paul is fighting to rescue the Corinthians for Christ. He's fighting to keep the good news about Jesus at the center of the Corinthian church. And as Paul wades into this fight, each section of our passage presents us with a paradox. A paradox is a truth that on the surface seems to be a contradiction. The first paradox is this, we are called to war, but we must be characterized by meekness and gentleness. And Paul gives a second paradox, a truth that on the surface seems to be a contradiction. Our battle, he says, takes place in this world, 
But we must not use this world's weapons. And then third, he says, we have demolition work to do, but our ultimate aim must be to build up. We find the first paradox in verses 1 and 2. We are called to war, but we must be characterized by meekness and gentleness. Look again at verse 1. By the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold when away. I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. Paul is responding here to some of the accusations being made by his opponents. When Paul's around, they say, he's timid, he's weak. But when he's at a safe distance, then he gets bold in his letters. And down in verse 10, if you want to skip down there, Paul gives us more insight into what his opponents are saying. Some say his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he is unimpressive, and his speaking amounts to nothing. It seems that both of those statements are negative. So the accusation is not that Paul says the right things on paper, but he doesn't back them up in person. No, the accusation is that when he writes his letters from a distance, he's a bully. And then when he actually shows up, he's a coward. So in verse 10, his letters are weighty and forceful, has the sense of dictatorial and aggressive. He's a bully in his letters and a coward when he shows up. So say Paul's opponents. And if we go back to the end of verse 2, we get a summary of their opinion of Paul. He lives by the standards of this world. Literally, he walks according to the flesh. So the accusation is that Paul's principles are taken from this world. He's a man of the flesh, not a man of the spirit. He's not living by the power of the Holy Spirit because he's so weak and unimpressive. Now, if this was just a matter of a personal attack on Paul, he would let it go. We know that he's let much worse go in the past when it was just a personal attack. But this is about much more than Paul's reputation. Paul knows that if Corinth rejects him, they'll reject his message too. But Paul's message is their only hope for salvation. It's their only hope for life. This fight is a matter of eternal life and death, and Paul is not going to let it go. He's fully prepared, verse 2, to be bold when he shows up in Corinth. He's fully prepared to run these intruders out of town. But Paul hopes it won't come to that. Paul will fight if he has to, but he does not love to fight. He is willing to be aggressive, but he does not delight in being aggressive. He says in verse 2, I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be. This is a key point for us to get hold of. When it's time to fight, we must be willing to fight. 
But we mustn't be men and women who love to fight. Why? Because we belong to Jesus. And that's how he was. He was willing to turn over tables and kick people into the street. He was willing to stand up and denounce those who were teaching lies. But Jesus' normal disposition was not aggressive. Jesus' posture in life was not angry. It was meek and gentle. The same Jesus who turned over tables in the temple also knelt down and washed his disciples' feet, including the feet of Judas, who would betray him later that same evening. And ultimately, the same Jesus who stood up and denounced the Pharisees went to his own slaughter as quietly as a lamb. Jesus' boldness was never the kind of boldness that works for self-promotion. It was never the kind of boldness that refuses personal sacrifice. Paul is a servant of Christ. And Paul knows that the servant is to be like his master. So even as Paul makes it clear that he is ready to fight, look again how he begins verse 1. By the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. Paul says, look, I can't let these intruders get away with what they're doing. I can't turn a blind eye to it. There's too much at stake. The gospel, the good news about Jesus is at stake. But Paul says, I'm not looking for any excuse for a fight. I'm not rubbing my hands in anticipation of this. This is not my normal disposition. My normal posture in life is the same as my meek and gentle Savior. I'm about graciousness, not aggression and anger. Paul would love nothing more than to have this all sorted out before he even arrives in Corinth. He has no relish for showdowns. You and I are called to be Christ's ambassadors in this world. And our job is not always going to be pleasant. Sometimes we will have to speak up. We'll have to call sin, sin. Sometimes we'll have to confront or rebuke a Christian brother or sister. Sometimes as a church body, we will have to carry out church discipline. Sometimes for the sake of the good news and for God's honor and for the good of Christ's church, we will have to take strong action. But at heart, we must be gracious and merciful people, just like our Savior. We are called to war, but we must be characterized by meekness and gentleness. If we're permanently aggressive and confrontational, then something is wrong. We're not to be angry people. We're not to be people who are always looking for an argument, even if it is a theological argument. We're blessed people. God loves us. Our sins are forgiven. We have a home in heaven. We're sons and daughters in the family of God. We ought to be the least angry men and women around. 
Paul has made his heart clear. He is a meek and gentle man who is willing to fight for the sake of the gospel. That's the foundation for chapters 10 to 13. And then he goes on to show us a second paradox. Our battle takes place in this world, but we must not use this world's weapons. Paul's opponents, we've seen, are accusing him of living by the standards of this world. But the reality, Paul says, is very different. Verse 3, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The NIV reads, we live in the world, literally in the flesh. So Paul is not just saying that he happens to live on planet earth. He means more than that. He's saying that he shares in the human condition, just like everybody else. Like everyone else on planet earth, Paul knows all about human weakness. Earlier in this letter, he referred to himself as a jar of clay who is outwardly wasting away. And every day, Paul has to deal with human laws and human points of view, human culture and traditions. He lives in this world. It's all around him. It's like water around a fish. But Paul does not wage war as the world does. He doesn't use the methods of the world around him. He doesn't use the ways that this world tries to get things done. Don Carson says, the world is the sphere of Paul's activity, but that doesn't mean the world dictates the agenda. It doesn't mean the world provides him with the tools for the job. No, look what he says in verse 4. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We might ask, what are the weapons of the world around us? Well, Paul is obviously not thinking of tanks and missiles. He's thinking about human cleverness, getting your way by manipulation, by turning on the charm, swaying people by your personal charisma, pulling the wool over people's eyes with clever arguments. Politicians are always an easy target for us. But very often they illustrate what Paul has in mind here. A lot of the time it seems politics is about saying whatever you need to say to get people to vote for you. It's about taking the truth and manipulating it any way that seems to serve your purpose. It's about blinding or overpowering people with the force of your personality. And those kind of weapons aren't just popular today. They were very big in Paul's day too. The big cities were full of teachers and philosophers who were masters at this. Paul lived in a society where the way you said something was often seen to be as important, if not more important, than what you said. The main thing was getting people to believe you. Whether or not you were telling the truth was a secondary matter. And it seems the teachers trying to take over the Corinthian church used the full range of these worldly weapons. 
And because Paul didn't use them, they said Paul was weak. But Paul says, no, it's not weakness. It's just that when I fight, I use a whole different set of weapons. The weapons we fight with have divine power to demolish strongholds. Paul is painting a picture for us. We're to imagine a castle or maybe the keep that's within the castle walls. Paul is saying serving Christ in this world can be like storming a keep. There are times when we need to go on the offensive. We need to storm the walls. But what does Paul mean when he talks about demolishing strongholds? Well, he immediately explains what he means. He's not talking about literal walls. Verse 5, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Paul is saying that sometimes before we can make any progress with the good news about Jesus, we have to tear down people's false thinking. Sometimes before people will hear the gospel, we have to clear away barriers to the gospel. When Paul mentions arguments, he means false arguments, persuasive lies. It could be, for example, the argument that the progress of science has disproved the Bible. It could be the argument that the Bible's blueprint for family life and sexual behavior is out of date and harmful. That we'd be happier and healthier if we just do away with sexual boundaries and come up with a new notion of what family is. Another barrier to the gospel might be the idea that biblical Christianity is just intolerant. That being a Christian makes you a bigot. Or it might be the idea that because there are so many religions in the world, there can't be just one way to God. That's our topic for 59 minutes tonight. Those are examples of arguments that might have to be demolished before people will listen to the good news that we have to share. Those are lies that have persuaded a lot of people. Of course, it's not always that way. Sometimes people are just at the point where they're ready to listen. But sometimes there are false arguments that need to be torn down first. That's one kind of stronghold that Paul mentions. He mentions another in verse 5. Every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Another translation says, every proud obstacle. Paul has in mind human arrogance, self-righteousness. One example of that might be the kind of attitude that says, I don't need God. Or, it could be the feeling that, actually, God's lucky to have me. I don't know why he puts up with those other losers who call themselves Christians, but at least he has me on his team. Religious people can be just as proud as the non-religious. People who sit in church pews can be just as smug and self-righteous as those who never cross the threshold of a church. And in both cases, if the gospel is going to penetrate their hearts, their pretensions need to be torn down. They need to be demolished. 
the proud atheist needs to learn that only the fool says there is no God. The proud churchgoer needs to learn that his or her good deeds are like filthy rags to God. An eternity of good deeds couldn't earn us a place in heaven. The only way to heaven is to kneel at the foot of the cross and cry out, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. But Paul's warfare is not just about demolishing. Still in verse 5, he says, we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. In other words, old ways of thinking need to be replaced by God-honoring ways of thinking. And then in verse 6, Paul mentions a final aspect of this battle for hearts and minds. We will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. Paul is talking here about church discipline. In 1 Corinthians, he called the church to put out a member who is living in unrepented sexual immorality. Earlier in this letter, he mentions another case of church discipline. And here he says, when I come to Corinth, I'm willing to push for more discipline. Later on, Paul is going to mention some in the church who have sinned earlier and have not repented of their impurity, sexual sin, and debauchery in which they have indulged. Paul has no love for imposing church discipline. He loves to see repentant sinners restored. But he knows that ignoring sin in the church destroys the church. Paul knows the church is Christ's bride. Paul is going to do all he can to present Christ with a pure bride. He's willing to put unrepentant sinners out of the church. He knows they can be a cancer in the church. But why does Paul say he will be ready to punish disobedience once your obedience is complete? What does that mean? Well, every time Paul talks about church discipline, he hopes that it will be an action taken by the whole church body. He knows that discipline has a greater chance of being a positive thing if it's agreed on and carried out by the whole fellowship, not just imposed on the leader, by the leaders. And here Paul is saying, I hope that you agree with what I'm saying. And I hope that even before I arrive, you will run these intruders out of time. And you'll put these brazen sinners out of the fellowship. Paul has described the kind of warfare that he's engaged in, demolishing strongholds in people's minds and hearts, taking those minds and hearts captive for Christ, and within the church, fostering the kind of culture in the church that sees the importance of dealing with sin. That's the kind of warfare Paul is engaged in. And that's why the weapons of this world are absolutely no use to Paul. Remember what the weapons of this world are. Human cleverness, manipulation, swaying people by the force of personality. 
What use could those weapons possibly be in setting men and women free from spiritual deception? What use could they possibly be in humbling proud, self-sufficient hearts? What use could they possibly be in producing Christ-honoring, sin-hating people? No use at all. So Paul won't use worldly weapons. Those weapons might get good enough results in the political world or the business world, but they are worthless for the fight Paul's engaged in. He may as well take on a tank with a pea shooter as tackle a spiritual fight using human cleverness or human charisma. So what did Paul rely on? In verse 4 he says he relies purely on divine power. And he set out his approach more fully in his earlier letter, 1 Corinthians. He said, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on man's wisdom, but on God's power. We know this, but it's so easy for us to forget this. We look around at the state of our country. We see family members who are going to hell. And with the very best of intentions, we start looking around for some worldly weapons that we can use. What can we do that will get people into the church? That will get them to make a decision? What silver bullet can we find that will crack this society around us? Because prayer and sharing the gospel and preaching the word and loving each other, well, none of that seems to be getting us very far. Sometimes we feel if we're going to win this world for Christ, then we have to use this world's methods. We have to put on a show. We have to tell people what they want to hear. And we have to find someone who can talk them into the kingdom. But only divine power gets people into heaven. There isn't a single soul in heaven who ended up there because of human cleverness. And there never will be. Certainly we need to work to present our message clearly and freshly and enthusiastically. But without divine power, the clearest freshest, most enthusiastic presentation is still going to fall flat. And when God pours out his divine power, he tends to pour it out where there is prayer, where the gospel is central, where God's word shapes everything that goes on, and where Christian love surrounds everything that goes on. Those are not glamorous weapons, but those are the weapons God has given us. 
And they're the weapons that he fills with divine power. Our battle takes place in this world, but we must not use this world's weapons. And finally, and more briefly, we have demolition work to do, but our ultimate aim must be to build up. Verse 7, you are looking only on the surface of things. If anyone is confident that he belongs to Christ, he should consider again that we belong to Christ just as much as he. For even if I boast somewhat freely about the authority the Lord gave us for building you up rather than pulling you down, I will not be ashamed of it. I do not want to seem to be trying to frighten you with my letters. For some say his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he is unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. Such people should realize that what we are in our letters when we are absent, we will be in our actions when we are present. Paul's opponents in Corinth may not have won over the whole church, but they certainly have some people on their side. Some people are starting to say, yes, Paul's not really up on the latest methods, is he? And he's not the most exhilarating speaker, is he? Maybe he's not even a proper Christian at all. Where's his power? Paul's opponents may also have been suggesting that he was only concerned to tear the Corinthians down. Look, he's always getting on your case about something. Why can't he lighten up? But Paul says to the Corinthians in verse 7, you're only looking on the surface of things. In other words, when you think like that, you're only thinking about things in shallow, superficial ways. You're focusing on the externals. Certainly, Paul does confront the Corinthians about sin. He does call them to obedience in every area of life. And he does use strong words at times. But his mission from God is not to pull them down. It's to build them up. In verse 8, he mentions the authority the Lord gave us for building you up rather than pulling you down. If Paul puts up a fight for the Corinthians, if he works to demolish sin and false ideas among them, it's because his ultimate aim is to build them up. In Colossians, he says, we proclaim him, that's Christ, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end, I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. Paul never tore anything down just for the sake of tearing it down. He tore down in order that he might build up. Specifically, that he might build everyone up to maturity in Christ. That's the aim of his preaching and of his letters and of his call for church discipline. The message that Paul brings is ultimately a message of life. And again, this is important for us to grasp. Strong authority in the church is not in itself a bad thing. So long as it is the clear aim of building up rather than simply tearing down. 
Some leaders love nothing more than throwing their weight around and asserting their authority. But the end product of it all is just a trail of bruised and battered Christians. Those leaders have done nothing but tear down. Paul is different. In verse 11, he promises he will arrive in Corinth ready to be as bold in person as he can be in his letters. And yet we've seen that Paul begins from a place of meekness and gentleness. That's his normal posture in life, just like his Savior. And when Paul enters into warfare, the ultimate aim is always to build up. Tearing down is never an end in itself. It's easy for church leaders to get stuck in tear-down mode. And it's easy for individual Christians to get that way too. Are we always on the lookout for some mistake or some error that we can pounce on? Do we find that when we talk about other Christians or when we talk about the work of the church, we can't do it without being critical? If we find ourselves getting like that, then we need to ask, what is my aim here? Is my ultimate aim to build up this brother or sister? To build up this fellowship? Or am I just doing demolition work without any positive purpose in mind? Within the last few months, two big buildings either side of our house have been demolished. At the moment, we're living between two mud pits. But there are plans, I think, to put up two buildings that are better and more useful than the ones that were there before. The New Testament tells us time after time, there will be occasions when we need to rebuke and challenge in the church. But the New Testament is equally clear that our aim must be to build up. If there's any tearing down to do, it's only to clear the way for building up. So as you and I enter into warfare for the cause of the gospel, let's pray for God's power. And let's remember that our goal is not just to oppose wrong and tear down and call to account. Ultimately, our aim is to see something better built instead. Our eyes are in the day when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We're going to close by singing, O Church, Arise.